Hi everyone and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. Let's talk about red-eyed tree frogs. Those little tropic-dwelling amphibians with lime green skin, gangly orange toes with sticky pads, prime for leaping from tree branch to tree branch, and of course, their bright red eyes in big round sockets. These little dudes were a topic of fascination for another little dude, seven-year-old Kyron Horman. He had been diligently studying and researching them for his school science fair that was set to take place on June 4th, 2010, which also happened to be the same day as the school talent show. Skyline Elementary School, located in Portland, Oregon, was about to be a busy and bustling place on the 4th. It was set to be a great day one of the last Fridays of the school year, and Kyron couldn't wait. The morning of June 4th, Kyron couldn't stop talking about how excited he was for the fun-filled day ahead, and since his energy was so infectious, his dad, Kane, promised his son that he would take him out for ice cream after school to celebrate even further. Kane wasn't able to attend the science fair or the talent show due to his work commitments, but Kyron's stepmother, Terry Moulton Horman, was planning to drop him off at school and help him set up both his trifold display board and his rainforest diorama. Just after 8 a.m. that morning, a picture was taken. Kyron, proudly wearing a black t-shirt emblazoned with the CSI TV show logo, smiled widely in front of his project his eyes crinkling excitedly behind his distinctive wire-rimmed glasses. It would be the last picture ever taken of the second grader. Because within the eight o'clock hour of that June morning, somehow, someway, Kyron vanished in the midst of an elementary school teeming with fellow students, parents, teachers, administrators, and his own stepmother. The search for Kyron Horman, which marked its 10th year this June, has become the largest and most expensive investigation in Oregon's history. That investigation, I should point out, isn't just a missing persons investigation anymore. The investigation into the disappearance of Kyron Horman is a criminal one. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. to the story of Kyron's disappearance, it's important to understand the cast of characters that we're working with when telling this story. I say this because Kyron had a unique family dynamic, and it was rather convoluted, if I'm being honest. Kyron's biological mother, Desiree Young, and his biological father, Kane Horman, actually divorced a few months before Kyron was even born. Desiree filed for divorce while eight months pregnant, citing irreconcilable differences. Allegedly, the couple had debated divorcing before this final filing, but upon finding out that Desiree was pregnant, they agreed to try and work on their marriage. That didn't exactly work out because sometime in 2001 or 2002, Kane met Terry Moulton, a redheaded woman a few years older than himself who was very involved in the fitness and bodybuilding realms, and the two would begin an affair, all while Desiree was pregnant. Not 
exactly the most auspicious of beginnings for a relationship, but like, say la vie, I guess. On September 9th, 2002, Desiree gave birth to the son that she shared with Cain, despite their divorce. Following in a tradition on Cain's side of the family, the baby was named Kyron Richard, K-Y-R-O-N. And for the first few years of his life, Desiree and Cain shared joint custody of him. Quick regroup to make sure you're following. Kyron's biological mother is Desiree. His biological father is Cain. That previously pretty seamless custody arrangement would change in 2004, however. Cain assumed full custody of Kyron this year, when Desiree was suffering from a severe medical problem that forced her to travel to Canada for treatment. It's been reported that she was being treated for kidney failure related to her usage of a non-FDA-approved drug, but Desiree has never publicly stated what all led to her medical crisis. In any regard, she allowed Kane to retain full custody of Kyron, and the toddler went on to live full-time with his biological father, Terry Moulton, who is now living with and dating Kane, and Terry's son from a previous marriage. In 2007, while on vacation in Hawaii, Kane and Terry got married. The ceremony was held on the beach, and the bride and groom wore bathing suits as they said their vows. Photos show Kyron holding his father's hand, a little mini best man. It's been said that Terry decided to step away from several long-term substitute teaching contracts in order to help take care of Kyron. She had a master's in education, and she was very involved with Kyron's education when he started kindergarten. She was a familiar face at Skyline Elementary School, and her extra attention to Kyron's schoolwork didn't go unnoticed. By 2010, when Kyron was a second grader, he had been placed into a more advanced math class with older students, and he learned a decent amount of sign language, thanks to Terry's attention. By the time that Desiree was healthy enough to return to the United States, she decided that it would be in Kyron's best interest to stay with his father and Terry in Portland. She herself moved about four and a half hours away where she had been living before her health crisis and instead relocated to Medford, where her family lived as they supported her as she got back on her feet. There, she met a well-liked local, a major crimes detective by the name of Tony Young. In 2008, the two married. It's been said that Kyron was quite impressed with his new stepfather. He was pretty taken with the idea of having a detective for his stepdad and even said on a few occasions that he wanted to be a detective like Tony when he grew up. 2008 was also a big year for Kane and Terry. The two welcomed a blue-eyed and ginger-haired daughter together. Again, following in Kane's family tradition, she was given a name starting with K, Kiara. Let's have a second regroup since we've added more people to our cast. Desiree, Kyron's biological mother. Kane, Kyron's biological father. Terry Moulton Horman has now become Kyron's stepmother. Terry and Kane have a daughter together, Kyron's half-sister, Kiara. Tony Young is now married to Desiree and has become Kyron's stepfather. Got it? I don't blame you if you're taking notes on this family tree because it's got several offshooting branches, as we can well see. Despite the initial dramatics of the blended family's beginning, the Horman-Young clan seemed to be navigating their unique dynamic as best they could. Kyron would stay with his biological mother, Desiree, and stepfather, Tony, most weekends and enjoyed being a big brother to his half-sister, Kiara, while spending the weeks with his biological father, Kane, and his stepmother, Terry. In the early summer of 2010, anyone looking into their life 
would see that it was good, if a little hectic. That image of a united blended family would start to experience cracks in their foundation, though, when all hell broke loose on June 4th, 2010. The 60 minutes of the 8 o'clock hour on that June morning have been parsed and dissected and reviewed countless times when it comes to this case. All it took was that one hour for an entire family's life to change. There have been a number of different details offered up for the timeline of this morning over the years, but right now, I'm going to give you the version that's most widely accepted before we break things down even further. So, let's start at 8.15 a.m. on the morning of June 4th. Skyline Elementary had been open for about 15 minutes at that point, as parents and family were invited to tour the science fair that was taking place that morning. Just outside the brick building, the school's reader board read, June 4th, IB Inquiry Expo, 8 to 10. Talent show, 1 to 2.45. The skyline itself was located kind of interestingly in terms of the area of Portland where it sat. It was part of the public school system, but by no means was it in the downtown or more urban area of Portland. Instead, it was, in a word, rural. Big barns were neighboring fixtures, as were small community churches that most of the time were just one-room buildings. There was a long stretch of highway, the Northwest Skyline Boulevard, that ran as the main, albeit somewhat lonely, road outside the school. So the reader board, no doubt, had been viewed by countless people driving through the area. Other than that main road, though, the school and the other buildings on its campus were surrounded by the fields and forestry of Portland's West Hills. It gave the school an almost classically Northwest Pacific feel, as the school nestled into the lush greenery somewhat unassumingly. That morning, Terry was driving Kane's white pickup truck to the school. She had asked to swap cars in a bid to better fit all of Kyron's extra supplies with him for the science fair. In the back seat was also 18-month-old Kiara. So it was that Terry, Kyron, and Kiara all drove over to the Skyline Elementary School that morning. Upon arrival, Terry later told investigators that their first stop inside the school was to drop Kyron's backpack and jacket at his desk in his second grade classroom. They then headed to the area where the science fair would be taking place. By 8.15, Kyron was posing for his picture in front of his trifold board. The PTA president, Gina Zimmerman, was walking through the fair herself at the time, and she witnessed Kyron having his picture taken. Terry also took another picture of Kyron, and this time it included his deskmate at the fair, who had also done their project on red-eyed tree frogs. At 8.45, Terry claims that before she left the school, she watched Kyron walk down the hall to his classroom. She said that was the last time she saw him. At 9 a.m., after apparently getting Kiara settled again in the car, Terry allegedly made the nine-minute drive and arrived at a Fred Meyer store on Northwest Inbury Drive. Fred Meyer's, for those not in the know, are a type of convenience store not dissimilar from CVS or Rite Aid, maybe even kind of a Target vibe, and she stopped here to pick up a medication for the ear infection that Kiara was reportedly suffering from. This Fred Meyer store, however, was apparently out of the medication that she needed, at 9.12, though, Terry purchased something from the store. Starbucks employees later testified that she might have ordered a drink from the in-store Starbucks there, but it's never been out and out confirmed what she bought at 9.12. 
We're never quite certain what it is she bought or why it took her 12 minutes to be told the store didn't have the medication. Some sources reported that Kiara was actually prescribed a medication, so it would have been called in by her pediatrician, but Terry has never confirmed or denied this. After learning that the Embry Drive Fred Meyer didn't have what she needed, Terry got back in the car and drove 20 minutes to a Fred Meyer in Beaverton. The time is about 9.30 a.m. We can only estimate the time of these errands because law enforcement, they've never released the exact timings of Terry's activity. While waiting for the medication at this Fred Meyer, Terry runs into an acquaintance from the gym that she goes to, a woman named Andrea. Now, Andrea and Terry weren't exactly bosom buddies or anything. Acquaintance is truly the best word for their relation to each other. This morning, however, Terry chats up a storm with Andrea. She tells her how, oh, Kiara is sick, that they're picking up an ear infection medication, and oh, wait, 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 look at this picture of Chiron from this morning. Look how cute he is in front of his science fair exhibit. What seems like a pretty normal interaction between two women is on the surface level. But when Andrea thought back to their conversation in the days after, she realized that had been the longest conversation that they'd ever had. Terry and Andrea hadn't ever exchanged more than a few pleasantries in the past, simply in passing at the gym. Terry was behaving as normally as one would expect, but what about this day had inspired her to be so friendly, so buddy-buddy with this acquaintance? They say hindsight is twenty twenty, and... When Andrea thought back to the exchange in the days after June 4th, she started to view the whole thing as rather odd. Once Terry finished their conversation with Andrea, she secured the medicine for Kiara. Some accounts say that since she was in Beaverton already, she dropped off some of Kane's dry cleaning at the Magic Dry Cleaners on Southwest Walker Road. The owner of the store claims Terry came in just before 10 a.m. and she was alone. From this, we have to assume that she simply left Kiara in the car she ran in and ran out, which is equal parts understandable, but also, like, not fucking great. Other accounts report that she actually stopped into a Michael's craft store at just after 10 a.m. The reason we don't have a clear idea of what all Terry got up to after the Fred Maya runs is because, well, stories have changed over the years, and they've changed a lot. It should also be noted that at 10 a.m., as all of this was happening, the first classes were beginning at Skyline Elementary, and there was no sign of Kyron. His teacher, Christina Porter, instead marked him absent. No call home to the Hormans or to Desiree was made to confirm this, though. Errands seemingly done by 10 a.m. For the next hour and a half, Terry claims that she drove around the northwest area of Multnomah County in an effort to get a fussy Kiara to settle down. She claims that she drove pretty aimlessly, just trying to use the time-honored parenting hack of a car's motion and rumble to lull Kiara enough through her earache so she could sleep. The thing about this 90-minute span, though, no one has ever been able to confirm this for fact, and... A cell phone ping around 10.39 a.m. seemed to suggest that not only was Terry not in the area that she claimed to have been in, but that she was somewhere else entirely. We'll get to that in a bit. At 11.39, Terry decided to pop into the 24-hour fitness gym that she belonged to in Beaverton, 
while she worked out, she checked Kiara into the daycare center despite her ear infection and the fact that she'd been called down to the daycare just the day before while working out since Kiara was so fussy. I'm all for squeezing in a workout when you can, especially for parents with busy schedules, but like maybe forego the sweat session when your kid has an ear infection nasty enough that you were already called to get her early, she has a prescription medication, and you just had to drive around for an hour and a half to settle her down? By 12.20, though, Terry is finished at the gym. She drives 11 miles and arrives back to the family home. At 1.21, she's plopped in front of the family computer and uploading pictures to Facebook. That afternoon, she added a total of nine pictures to her profile. Three of them were from the science fair that morning, including the now infamous photo of Kyron in front of his poster board. About 40 minutes later at 2 p.m., Kane arrives home from work. He sees Terry still scrolling through the computer, grabs himself something to eat, and hops into the shower. It's been reported that he was hoping to work for the rest of the afternoon at the office in their family home in order to be around the family and to make good on his promise to Kyron that the two would celebrate his exciting Friday with some ice cream. During the time that Terry was uploading pictures to Facebook and Kane was arriving home, the Skyline Elementary talent show was happening from 1 p.m. to 2.45 p.m. Kyron had been signed up to participate and even had a buddy that he was going to do its thing with, but since he'd been marked absent at 10 a.m., his absence went relatively unnoticed. From 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., the start of the talent show, no one at Skyline had seen Kyron, and no one thought anything of it. At 3.30, Terry and Kane and little Kiara all walked down to meet Kyron at his bus stop. As the various children piled off, the bus driver, who was well-known and familiar to the Hormans, he was confused. Kyron had never gotten on the bus that afternoon, so what were they doing waiting for him now? Maybe it was just a miscommunication. After all, it had been such a busy and activity-filled day at the school, it was possible that Kyron had gotten confused and thought Terry was going to pick him up, since that was actually what she had told Kane when they agreed to swap cars and let Terry drive his pickup that morning. She claimed that the pickup would be easier to load and unload Kyron's project in a larger truck than her own four-door sedan. Kyron had also been a little unfocused lately. It was said that he'd been forgetting things, staring off into space, and walking into rooms, but promptly having no idea what he came in there for. Had his recent forgetfulness kicked in and confused him into thinking that he was being picked up, maybe by Kane, who had promised his son ice cream after school. The bus driver offered to call over to the school, and he did. Susan Hall, the secretary, picked up and listened as the driver relayed what was going on. She pulled up her records, and I imagine this is when the first icy tendrils of dread started to curl around everyone's stomachs at the bus stop. What Susan Hall saw in the school records was that Kyron wouldn't be found waiting at the school for his parents, because Kyron had been marked absent almost six hours earlier at 10 a.m., Kyron Horman was missing. Almost immediately after Susan Hall, the bus driver, Terry, and Kane put the pieces together that something was very, very wrong, 911 was called. The secretary at 3.46 p.m., she placed the call to 911 to alert police that a child at Skyline Elementary was missing. 
Now, credit where credit's due, because from the jump on that afternoon of June 4th, law enforcement took Kyron's disappearance seriously, and officers were dispatched to the school almost immediately. Although it's unclear if they arrived before or after Susan Hall called 911, by around 3.45, Kane and Terry were at Skyline, while various teachers and school employees were gathering to try and figure out where the day had gone so wrong to wind up with the child missing, Susan Hall was once again on the phone, this time to Desiree Young, Kyron's biological mother, who was unaware of what was going on four hours away in Portland. It always sat a little oddly with me that the secretary had to call Desiree as opposed to Kane or Terry, and Desiree said as much herself that she was perturbed why Terry didn't call her sooner. In fact, Desiree had to call Terry and be like, uh, what the fuck is going on, in order to get one of the other co-parents in their situation to clue her in. At 4.15 p.m., the Portland Police Bureau and the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office, which I will be calling MCSO from here on out because that's a damn mouthful, they arrived at two scenes, Skyline Elementary and the Horman household to start conducting their initial searches. At the start, some wondered if Kyron had simply wandered off somewhere or had gotten stuck in a crawl space inside the school. It seemed a possibly likely scenario. Wandering off had become another habit of Kyron's, in addition to his newfound penchant for staring off and getting distracted. Kyron's teachers had noted that he had to be reminded to ask to go to the bathroom before actually doing so, since he rather frequently just up and went. It was a funny sort of just opposing behavior because while Kyron liked to wander, Desiree knew that according to an investigation discovery documentary about the case, he had, quote, a fear of not being able to find his way home, which was possibly linked to the fact that he legitimately needed his rather distinctive wire-rimmed glasses because, quote, he couldn't see more than a few feet in front of him. Carol Moulton, Terry's mother, told Oregon Live that when it came to Kyron and wandering off, he was still diligent to remain close by. Quote, he won't get out of sight of the house, she said. He's pretty insecure about that, so I can't see him wandering off. So while Kyron was apt to slip away without notice or permission at times, would he really have gone so far off the grid and under the radar this purposely? And more to that point, how was his absence even allowed to go on for so long undetected in a school of all places? I think we're all familiar with the rigmarole that's part and parcel when it comes to getting called out of school as a child. There has to be a note, previous communication made that you'd be absent on XYZ day for XYZ hours or for the whole day for whatever reason. If you were sick, your adult would call in in the morning of the day that you were ill and squared away then and there. If you happen to be missing by the time attendance happened, however, a call would usually be placed to your home or whichever number was listed as the proper contact to confirm this absence or to blow your cover if you were trying to skip school. Regardless of the exact scenario, there should have been communication. There was double checking. There was a system. Or at least there was supposed to be. So how did the system fail so spectacularly on this day? It turned out the answer lied with Terry. 
Terry, being involved with children's education and especially Kyron's, had started the process to have him evaluated for ADHD or other attention disorders because of his forgetfulness and the distraction that she'd noticed lately. Later, she even went so far as to claim that she thought that he might be having many seizures, saying that his doctor had suggested as much. So it was, though, that Terry had arranged for Kyron's pediatrician to have his teacher review his behavior while in class, and if necessary, then an IEP, Individualized Education Plan, would be drawn up to best suit his needs after the fact. On June 3rd, the literal day before Kyron was last seen, Terry allegedly delivered paperwork to Christina Porter, Kyron's teacher at the time, and told her he was going for a doctor's appointment on Friday. This particular Friday has long been debated in the realm of this case. Christina Porter claims that she was led to believe the doctor's appointment was on June 4th, since the very next day was, in fact, Friday, June 4th. That honestly makes sense. According to KPIC, one of Kyron's friends, the same one who was next to him at the science fair, later told investigators that he actually knew Kyron would be out of school for the doctor's appointment that day, too. Terry, however adamantly denies and says that she told Christina Porter that the appointment was the following Friday, June 11th. Now, both sides of the coin are plausible here. A parent hands in paperwork on Thursday, asking for it to be returned on the next day, Friday, for the appointment that was supposed to be happening that day. Or a parent hands in that same paperwork on that same Thursday, asking for it to be returned before the Friday of the appointment. By other turns of that multi-sided coin, though, Terry has said that she told the teacher about the appointment by way of yelling it across a crowded gymnasium, and also that Christina Porter was hard of hearing, so she possibly hadn't understood what Terry was telling her regarding the details of the appointment. As a, quote, new teacher in her first year at Skyline, Terry claimed that it made sense if Christina had misunderstood her. The thing about all of whatever that is from Terry, though, Christina Porter wasn't a new teacher. She was in her third year of teaching at Skyline, and as someone who was so regularly involved with all the goings-on at Skyline, Terry definitely would have and should have known that. Also, Christina Porter has never come out to confirm that she's hard of hearing, but most reported sources do say that this was another inexplicable statement that Terry made about her that was patently false. And it's never been confirmed to the public anyway, if Kyron ever had a scheduled appointment on either of those June days at all. Which begs the question, why? If there was never a doctor's appointment, then why did Terry lie about it? And why lie about Kyron's teacher's tenure and hearing abilities of all things? Why would anyone already be creating lies within the first few hours of a child's disappearance? By 5.30 p.m. on June 4th, the Portland Public School System sent out a broadcast to all of the parents throughout the district. They repeated the facts as they stood at that time, almost two hours after it had been discovered that Kyron had allegedly been missing since he said goodbye to his stepmother at 8.45 a.m. that morning. And the facts, bare bones though they were, were these. Kyron Horman, seven years old and a second grader at Skyline Elementary, had never returned home from school. At 7 p.m., the MCSO, 
Multnomah County Sheriff's Office, quick reminder, was already in contact with the county's on-call search and rescue coordinator. Detective Sergeant Lee Gossen had reached out to Sergeant Travis Goldberg to alert him of the situation and made it clear a formal search for the missing Kyron needed to start now. At around the same time, the media had gotten wind of the story and the MCSO was beginning to coordinate with them as well. The MCSO public information officer began the first steps of organizing the first meeting with the press, while Sheriff Dan Statton made his own call, a uniquely chilling one. Between 7 and 7.45 p.m., Sheriff Statman alerted the FBI that a little boy was missing from his elementary school under circumstances that were only becoming increasingly murkier. Just before 8.30 at 8.25 p.m., Deputy Mark Heron arrived at Skyline Elementary and the first search and rescue operation for Kyron began in full. The SAR efforts were bolstered by the 9.48 p.m. arrival of Mountain Wave, an organization based out of the town of Gresham, who had learned of the disappearance. Mountain Wave is a group especially trained, quote, in emergency communications and search and rescue efforts. An hour later at 10.40 p.m., the first searches for Chiron were concluded. Police reported that both the elementary school and the Horman home had been combed through, quote, including all crawl spaces, storage areas, classrooms, and outbuildings on the Skyline campus, which amounted to about a two-mile radius. It's been reported that 65 detectives, 60 trained searchers, and even more volunteers were involved in these first searches. Just four minutes later, at 10.44 p.m., the first tip came in. A caller suggested that SAR check out a train tunnel that was located near the school. This person claimed that they knew, quote, sometimes kids play in there and they wanted to, quote, make sure someone has checked that. The train tunnel led searchers nowhere and to no sign of Chiron. He had been missing for over 12 hours by then. Like I said at the beginning of today's story, the search for Chiron has become, since then, the largest effort put forth by Oregon officials in the state's history both in terms of sheer size and expanse of the search, and also in terms of how costly it has been. For the next 10 days, the search would include organizations like the National Guard and Pacific Northwest Search and Rescue. A profiler from Quantico was brought in. A Facebook group, Missing Child website, and a tip line were created. FBI agents swarmed the area, the type of presence you're both glad and terrified to see when it comes to missing children. By the end of those 10 days, 1,300 searchers and volunteers from Oregon, as well as neighboring California and Washington, scoured an area that had increased to six miles, including Savi Island, to no avail. But it's what took place during those 10 days that began raising suspicions, and they led right back to the Horman household. During the first few days of the search, Kane, Terry, Desiree, and her husband Tony had all remained quiet, silent, in fact, when it came to communicating with the press about the search for Chiron. For the public at large, this didn't sit right, especially in conjunction with everyone who was talking to the press and to investigators. On Sunday, June 6th, over 300 Skyline students and parents were called back to the school to participate in interviews with investigators. By 10 a.m., 
Students were arriving with their parents to both be interviewed and debriefed by police and FBI agents. Anyone who had seen or interacted with Kyron or even thought that they had were invited back for second and even third rounds of interviews. Now, as a reminder, this all happened in 2010. We were living in a pre-Sandy Hook world then, if only two years before. Before Sandy Hook, schools weren't nearly as stringent as they are now about who can enter a campus, who's allowed to be inside a school, or hell, who can even be on the property at all. Protocols were laxer and worries were fewer, which was fully evident with the way Skyline Elementary had operated on June 4th. Take, for just one example, the reader board outside the school advertising the events that would be taking place on June 4th. Not only did the board reveal that a science fair and a talent show would be taking place, it straight up listed the time frame within which each event would be held. The school that day was teeming with parents and siblings and other family members of students, and by all accounts, there was no system in place to register or even somewhat account for every person who walked through the skyline doors that day. There was no security, no surveillance cameras. Nothing was in place to create even one semblance of a log of who exactly was walking through the halls that morning. So the question became, had Kyron been a victim of a stranger abduction or even abducted by someone known to him through the school? In just two days, the rumor mill was already churning out possibilities and theories, each one more unnerving than the next. Though there was a six-hour lag time between Kyron going missing and his disappearance being reported, investigators more than made up for it with how quickly they mobilized their search. And after June 4th, as it would continue throughout the duration of the investigation, things started to happen very, very quickly as the rumors swirled around them. By the end of the 9th, MCSO had escalated Kyron's case from a missing child to a missing endangered child. Interestingly, though, investigators were specific about not calling Kyron's disappearance a kidnapping. It was a curious detail, and one that would become even curiouser and caused the rumors to intensify, especially in the face of the family's continued silence. The silence from Kyron's family was both deafening and damning to the public, so that might have been the instigating force that finally got them in front of the press on June 11th, a full week after Kyron had last been seen. For the previous seven days, they remained in the background. They helped with searches, distributed flyers, had t-shirts printed, but they didn't speak. Already, suspicions were being whispered about circulating around the unique Horman and Young families. And when Kyron's parents and step-parents finally did speak, it still struck people as odd. For one, only Kane and Tony Young spoke during the press conference. Both Desiree and Terry remained silent, and all four were wearing t-shirts with Kyron's image on them. I have to imagine, this was a strategy because of his professional experience as a detective that led Tony to taking the lead as the voice for the family during the presser. At one point, he spoke directly to his stepson, saying, I would just like to say, Kyron... We miss you, we love you, and we need you home right now. We want to say how much we appreciate the outpouring of love and support, prayer, and thoughts as we wait for you. You mean everything to us. Until you come home, this family is not complete. 
Kane also spoke and essentially thanked the public for their support, the volunteers for their search efforts, and he also urged anyone who might have been a witness to something, anything, that took place on the 4th to come forward. That plea was made on June 11th. Two days later, June 13th, investigators made a shocking announcement. After 10 days, with over 1,300 volunteers from three different states, the search for Chiron was being called off, at least in the way it had first started. The investigation into his disappearance, the very nature of the investigation, was shifting. Because they had decided, investigators, that this wasn't just a missing child's case anymore. Oh no. MCSO announced that the investigation into what happened to Chiron was now a full-scale criminal investigation. Ten days into his disappearance, and investigators were already publicly, and privately, switching gears. I told you, things started to happen very quickly, and it makes you wonder. What did investigators know that so convinced them to change the nature of the investigation? Though they aren't admissible in court, I have to imagine the strange circumstances surrounding one of Chiron's parents' polygraph results played a role in this change. And, like most things in this case, it had to do with Terry. Between June 4th and 25th, Terry underwent three polygraph examinations. I don't even really know if it should be counted as three, though, because during one of them, it seems to be most reported the second one, Terry allegedly stormed out because she was so incensed by how the examiners and police were treating her. Apparently, she didn't like the way she was being treated because she had already failed her first polygraph, while her other co-parents all passed with, quote, flying colors, according to Desiree. Leading up to her polygraphs, Terry had quite a lot to say, not to the press, but to everyone else surrounding the family at the time. In the first day or two after Kyron had vanished, she had been texting and emailing friends about the events of the 4th. Except they had started to differ, quite significantly, to what she initially had said happened. Terry started saying that, oh no, no, she and Kyron had actually had quite the morning together at Skyline. They didn't just drop his book bag in his classroom and go to the science fair and call it a day there. Apparently, she'd forgotten to mention a whole plethora of things that they allegedly did, including dropping off some books at the library, paying a visit to Kyron's first grade classroom, and they even had a race on the back stairs of the school, all leading up to the last, quote, vision, as Terry had begun calling it, of Kyron walking down the hall to his classroom. A few things. One, where was this story of the jam-packed morning from the start? And two, why can no one else corroborate these new events? If the two of them, actually three, since Kiara was with them as well, if they'd all been traipsing around the school like Terry was now claiming, why hadn't anyone else witnessed any of these events? There was another addition to Terry's story, one that was more concerning and certainly caught the attention of investigators. In these same emails and texts, Terry allegedly wrote to one friend that, quote, I left the school at nine and he was seen with a man chaperone and two girls after I left. There were no men on the chaperone list. 
How do you leave out the detail of your stepson being last seen with a mysterious man from the jump of his disappearance? Why is this something Terry is telling her friends? And I don't know, not investigators. And why is she only mentioning it now, days later? I wonder if those questions were asked during her polygraphs. It's been reported that when Terry found out that she failed her first polygraph, she was allegedly stunned. She then claimed that she hadn't had a fair examination because suddenly, similarly to Christina Porter, Kyron's teacher, Terry was saying that she herself was hard of hearing and she typically read people's lips to understand what was being said to her. She alleged that the police refused to let her sit facing the polygraph administrator and thus, that was why she failed, because she couldn't understand what was being asked of her. Interesting how this concept of miscommunication because of an unconfirmed hearing problem seems to be a running theme for Terry. And full disclosure, she very well may be hard of hearing, but this is just one of those other details that has never been confirmed. According to Kane, speaking to Oregon Live, Terry wasn't just upset when it came to her polygraphs and the failed results. She was pissed. Quote, she fully cooperated and took the first polygraph, then subsequently vented her failed results to all family, friends, and law enforcement at the house. A few days later, she cooperated and went to take a second polygraph test, but got up and walked out before the machine portion of the test could be administered. Again, by her own statement to family, friends, and law enforcement at the house. She continually pushed back and refused to repeat the second test for several days before going to take the test and then once again coming back to the house and venting to all listeners. Now, I told you these tests happened between June 4th and June 25th. And while the fact that Terry allegedly failed them more than once, the tale that the polygraph test had started spinning was only just beginning. Because before the month of June was over, a murder-for-hire plot was revealed, restraining orders were being placed, and divorce papers were being filed. I told you things started happening very, very quickly. In the span of about eight days, the unified front the Hormans and Youngs presented to the public started to crumble. The police had, from the beginning, always viewed Terry with a little bit of suspicion. The fact that she was, by all accounts, the last person to see Chiron before he disappeared, well, you never really want to be that person when it comes to a child going missing. Combined with the strange stories that she had been telling, her continued vagueness about Chiron's alleged doctor appointment, the alleged sighting of a mysterious male chaperone walking with Chiron to his class, the claims that they went to the library in his first grade teacher's classroom that couldn't be corroborated, and of course, that 90-minute period of time on the morning of June 4th that she claimed it was just spent driving around aimlessly, none of it boded too well for Terry. Terry's anger about her polygraphs tests also led police and the press to dig a little deeper, check her background out a little more closely. What they found wasn't great for her optics either. In the early 2000s, Terry had been arrested for a DUI, a DUI that took place while her son from her first marriage, James, who was only a child at the time, while he was in the car. This DUI and the subsequent involvement of CPS, it became clear, was the real reason Terry stepped away from teaching, because she couldn't get a job with those kinds of black marks on her record. 
There were also allegations from friends and family that Terry had been suffering from postpartum depression, that she had started drinking heavily. James had been sent to live with Terry's parents since he fought so frequently with both Terry and Kane. Her marriage was on the rocks, with constant fighting and even an admittance from Kane to Oregon Live that they had considered separating before Kyron disappeared. Then, a man named Rodolfo Sanchez entered the scene, and he had a hell of a story to add to the growing pile of worrisome anecdotes surrounding Terry Horman. The story Rodolfo Sanchez had to tell was this. Back in 2008, Terry had hired Sanchez on the sly, very much under the radar and without Kane's knowledge, since she was using the child support money she received from James's adoptive father to pay for his services. And Sanchez's services were of the landscaping variety. Apparently, Kane felt that James should be helping around the house and he wanted him to focus on yard work for their five-acre property. But Terry thought the work that the yard needed was too much for James to handle on his own, which is why she outsourced to Sanchez. Something important to note about Sanchez. English is not his first language, and he's a native Spanish speaker. His understanding of English was so limited, he later required a translator at a deposition, but we'll get to that later. Something important to note about Terry, too. She didn't speak Spanish. This, however, didn't appear to be a problem in late 2009 or early 2010, because at one point, according to Sanchez, Terry invited him out to lunch with baby Kiara on her lap, and she told him she wanted to hire him to kill Kane. She could offer him a lot of money, Sanchez claimed. In fact, she allegedly told him Kane carried about $10,000 in cash on him at any given time. So if Sanchez took her up on her offer, he could keep whatever cash was on Kane as well as a laptop he apparently had on his person most of the time. Terry's idea was that Sanchez would commit the murder in such a way that it would appear to be a mugging. Hence why he could keep the ten grand, and that no one would ever suspect Terry's involvement. She claimed Kane had been abusive and he was planning to divorce her anyway while getting sole custody of Kiara for himself. And Terry, well, she couldn't sit by and let that happen. Picture it, if you will. Redhead Terry bouncing Kiara up and down on her lap as she calmly suggests to her secret landscaper that he could come into $10,000 if he took out her husband for her, all while over a leisurely lunch at a public restaurant. It's a hell of a fucking story. And it's that story investigators repeated to Kane himself on or around June 20th. A few days later, Sanchez accompanied an undercover officer, went to the Horman home to see Terry, and the sting was on. All while wearing a wire, Sanchez attempted to discuss the hit that she had hired him for, with the undercover officer acting as the hitman himself. And Sanchez was wearing a wire while trying to guide the conversation back towards the one he claimed he had had months ago with Terry while in a restaurant. But something was off. Terry wasn't taking the bait. Instead, she called 911, saying someone was at her house trying to extort her for $10,000. And that was it. The attempted sting was over. Though Sanchez had failed to catch Terry on tape admitting to trying to solicit someone to murder her husband, Kane didn't need to hear it on tape to believe that his wife had tried to have him killed. 
On Saturday, June 26th, two 911 calls were made from the Horman house. One at 5.17 p.m. was classified in the system as being a threats-based call, and a deputy responded. Six hours later, at 11.39 p.m., the second call came in, and this one was regarding a custody situation. Because that night, barely three weeks after Kyron had disappeared, Kane moved out of the house, and he took 19-month-old Kiara with him. By June 28th, he had filed for divorce and slapped a restraining order against Terry as well, for good measure. In his emergency paperwork filing for divorce, Kane even went so far as to claim he believed Terry was, quote, involved in the disappearance of my son, Kyron. That same day, Kane, Desiree, and Tony issued a request to the Portland police. They asked investigators to issue a statement on their behalf, making it clear to the public that they were cooperating with the investigation. Terry's name was noticeably missing from the group's statement. The uniquely blended family and their committed strong front in the face of searching for Chiron wasn't so united anymore. As June turned into July, things only continued to get worse for Terry. The press jumped onto the sordid details that had started leaking. The alleged murder-for-hire plot, Terry's new story that she thought Sanchez was going to rape her on the previous Mother's Day because he apparently wore cologne to the house, the suggestion that the two had flirted or even had an affair, despite their language barrier, and of course, the shocking divorce paperwork and the restraining order that left Terry without access to Kiara. This country loves a salacious story, and scandal seemingly begets scandal when it comes to these kinds of cases. So, to the shock of no one, the hits just kept on coming. Another story leaked to the press, one that really had people wondering what the fuck was going on with the stepmom in all of this. Just a day or two after Kane had left, he'd packed a few things for himself and Kiara. As a police officer stood by waiting to intervene if necessary, Terry allegedly begging him not to leave, a new character was added to our cast. Michael Cook. He was a 37-year-old Portland resident, and like many community members, he had gotten involved in the searches for Kyron when they first began. Cook was actually a friend, or at least a friendly acquaintance to Kane, because the two of them had been former classmates in high school. When Cook showed up to help with the searches in the beginning of June, Kane had introduced him to Terry for the first time. By the beginning of July, however, Terry had taken from texting this new guy to sexting incredibly graphic messages as well as sexually explicit images to this guy. And I'd like to point out, we are incredibly sex positive here at Dark as Hell, so no shame in the sexting game if that's your particular thing. The thing that takes this particular sexting and places it squarely into the realm of, ooh, don't like what this all is suggesting, is the circumstance of it all. Here was a woman whose stepson that she had helped raise, he was missing. Her husband had just left her, taken their child, filed for divorce while making it clear he now believed that she had something to do with his son's disappearance, and placed a restraining order against her because of the threat that he felt she posed to himself and their daughter. 
This was a woman who had allegedly tried to scheme her way into having her landscaper kill her husband, who posted cheerfully about hitting the gym just a few days after her stepson had vanished, and who couldn't seem to stick to one story about that June morning as the investigation dragged on. In a last bit of protection from the public scrutiny, Terry finally hired a lawyer, a criminal defense lawyer, Stephen Howes, who was known to be a powerhouse, go-to-the-mat-for-you kind of guy, who also cost a lot of money. The optics carry a lot of weight in situations like these, and this case is no different. The eyes upon Terry weren't liking what they were seeing, which makes it all the more interesting knowing how poorly she was regarded by the public and how increasingly suspicious the police were becoming of her that someone actually came to bat for Terry during all of this. A woman named Dee Dee Spiker, a quote, longtime gym buddy of Terry's who had recently stepped up and into a much different role of friendship. She'd been one of the few who supported Terry throughout the ordeal when it first began in June accompanied by another friend who has never been identified publicly. This mysterious friend, the only detail we know about them is that they had an absolutely sterling alibi for the fourth. Well, this friend was the recipient of an interesting gift from Dee Dee, as was Terry. A burner phone. One for this friend, and one for Terry, and one for Dee Dee. This threesome had learned that the police had been monitoring the calls and texts between all three women at the time, so Dee Dee had gone out and gotten three burner phones for them to use. For whatever reason, Dee Dee registered, registered hers in her own name, but the other two phones for the friend and Terry had fake names associated with them, as if that was really going to be enough to throw the police off their trail, because, sorry ladies, the cops flashed those burner phones as well, so... So much for this bizarre little sisterhood going on. When Kane filed for divorce, Dee Dee actually moved into the house with Terry so she wouldn't be alone for fear of the reporters who frequently camped out on the lawn. Dee Dee served as a sort of buffer, confidant, and gatekeeper all rolled into one, which had people asking, why? When Desiree and Kane learned of Dee Dee's connection, they weren't happy about it. They released a statement saying that Dee Dee, quote, has been in close communication with Terry and has been providing Terry with support and advice that is not in the best interest of our son. Now, what the fuck is that supposed to mean? Well, we don't know the precise reason for this dig. We can make several safe assumptions based on things about Dee Dee that had started to come to light. When it comes to this investigation and when you look at it, it's like everything Terry touched throughout the course of it just withered, got tainted, stained by the association with the stepmother under suspicion. But fair is fair, and if Terry was going to have suspicion thrown on her, well, Dee Dee deserved the suspicion cast her way as well. Because wouldn't you know it, Dee Dee also had a strange hour and a half that she couldn't account for on June 4th. June 4th found Dee Dee doing some gardening work for a homeowner in Portland as an event was supposed to take place at the home the next day, and the owner wanted it to look nice for the big to-do. 
honestly, I can't tell if this was her full-time job or not at the time, but from my understanding, this was not Dee Dee's job at the time because she was actually supposed to meet her boss and another coworker or two for lunch that day. Dee Dee claimed that she'd been volunteering her time and services for this event via her horticulture skills, but that didn't turn out to be the case, which is why it was all the more strange when she just up and left the gardening job at around 1130 on June 4th for no discernible reason. We've never found out where she went or what she was doing either. According to Oregon Live, quote, she was then reportedly unavailable for the next 90 minutes or so, not even by telephone, and would not return until one o'clock that afternoon. That not reachable by telephone is an important detail because, remember, she was supposed to be meeting people for lunch. Those people tried to call her a handful of times, and she didn't answer a single call. She later claimed that she left her phone in her car and hadn't thought to traipse around for it through the 40-acre property. As for her disappearance, Dee Dee claimed another person on the property, a vendor setting up for the event the next day, had seen her during the unaccounted-for hour and a half. She described him, as well as his car, when investigators came calling, but she didn't know his name. Police approached the homeowner whose gardens Dee Dee had been working on, and that's when it all came out. That, no, Dee Dee was being paid for all of this, pretty handsomely too, for the work that she was doing. This wasn't volunteer work at all. Dee Dee's story was showing a lot of cracks in its facade. It was after this interview with police that Dee Dee got herself a lawyer, and Terry's lawyer, Stephen House, told her to cut ties with the woman. It was around this time that the rumors about the possibility of a grand jury convening hit fever pitch, and they scored. The grand jury began hearing evidence in the late summer through the fall of 2010. A number of people were subpoenaed, called, and testified throughout. We learned a lot of things, some baffling, some illuminating, some altogether of the middle of the road variety where there wasn't much to learn either way. A baffling re revelation? Just how much Rodolfo Sanchez didn't understand English. Like I said earlier when we discussed Sanchez and his claims that he was approached by Terry to kill Kane, English is not his native language. It's so much not native to him that he required a translator when he was being deposed, but not just to help smooth out any linguistic bumps or cultural confusion. No, this translator quite literally had to translate the lawyer's questions from English into Spanish and then essentially speak for Sanchez in response. I'm hesitant to say that Sanchez didn't know English at all, but it's clear his comprehension of the language was severely limited. So limited, in fact, it gave people pause. Because if he couldn't get through a deposition without having questions presented to him in full-on Spanish, then how in the hell had he managed to get through this supposed conversation over lunch with Terry about how to murder her husband? It didn't make sense. And wait a minute, if he couldn't have had this, have had this conversation without help, then how exactly did he fit into this equation at all? Had he gone to the police with his concerns? Or had the police gone to him? Or was it true that Sanchez became involved in the investigation by means of pressure from the DA to cooperate and wear wire for them, 
or else face the risk of being deported. When it comes to Rodolfo Sanchez, we really don't know much else. When the allegation that he had been pressured by the DA to help their supposed sting came to light, his character faded quickly to the background of the story, becoming a questionable detail and only a lingering, what if? As for the middle of the road variety of things that we learned, Investigators revealed that Terry's phone had pinged to a tower servicing Savi Island on the morning of June 4th, around the time that she was supposed to be driving around to Lul Kiara to sleep. The strange thing about this, though, is that there isn't a cell phone tower on Savi Island, despite the number of people who then assume that Terry must have gone onto the island. But according to surveillance cameras, on the one access point to the island, Terry and the white pickup truck for all appearances, had never been on the island that day. So, what to make of the ping? To this day, we still don't really know if it's an indicator of guilt or one of innocence. However, there was another neither here nor there kind of detail that we learned too. On June 4th, it was reported by some tipsters and witnesses that the white pickup truck the truck whose image had been circulating around and around Portland for anyone with any information about it. There was a sighting of it, and that there was another person in the car that day. Another adult. Something, too, you should know about our good friend Dee Dee. She's got the same shock of rusty, wiry, red hair that Terry does. Does it suggest that maybe Dee Dee was in the car with Terry at the time? Or perhaps was Dee Dee alone in the car at that period of time and Terry was elsewhere? It suggests a lot of things, things that we can only speculate on still, because it's proven to be such a confounding little detail. How about an illuminating revelation? Because with that, let me tell you about emails. Lots of emails. Emails, it should be said, that have never been out and out released to the public, but whose existence paints a darker, decidedly more sinister light across the whole case. Within the contents of these emails were complaints, rants, venting sessions, Terry's way of unloading to people about the problems within her marriage, how tense things were at home before her son James was sent to live elsewhere, blaming Kane for her son's departure, and also placing blame on Chiron for her marriage woes. It's been said that she, quote, described her husband as being overbearing and described an overall toxic household that was quickly becoming unstable. These emails, if the contents are true and haven't been exaggerated by Terry herself or the press at large, they're concerning. Concerning enough that Desiree herself had this to say about them, quote, it's very clear from Terry's horrible words that she had a severe hatred for Chiron and that she blamed a lot of the marital problems on Chiron. About 90% of child abductions are orchestrated by a number of the child's family. With the picture that had been painted throughout the latter half of 2010, one can see why the idea that Terry Hornman had done something, something hideous and reprehensible to Chiron, you could see why it was possible. With the new baby and a struggling marriage, the pressures that women so often feel that they have to have it all together, the suggestion of postpartum depression and a resurging struggle with alcohol, 
It's a scenario that would find anyone on the brink or at the edge. Maybe on the edge of making a terrible, awful decision. The grand jury, though, well, they're like a lot of us when it comes to this case. They can't decide. In December 2010, it was revealed that the grand jury had enough information and evidence to call the disappearance of Kyron a criminal investigation, but they didn't have enough proof to hand down any indictments. There were too many possibilities, strings left untied and dangling, strange twists that lead to nowhere, and too many questions with answers that we simply don't have. And that remains true 10 years later. I hope you're ready to hear some of the hashtag questions. I don't think we've ever had a case so far with so many of them. Let's start them from the top. Kyrene was last seen having his picture taken at 8.15. Gina Zimmerman, the PTA president, testified to that. Terry claims that she left Skyline at 8.45 after seeing Kyron walk himself to his classroom. So what all went on during the 30-minute period between the picture taking and Kyron allegedly walking to his classroom, as Terry first told investigators, happened? Did Terry and Kyron really drop off books at the library, visit his first grade teacher, and have some sort of race up the stairs, as she later told them? If they did, why has no one ever confirmed seeing them at the library or in the first grade classroom or wandering the halls at all? If not, why did Terry lie? Terry initially said Kyron was walking to his classroom by himself when she last saw him. She then told a story about Kyron being with a male chaperone. Who is the male chaperone? Who were the two girls she said were accompanying him? Is this story true? And again, if not, why did Terry lie? Is it true Kyron told another student that he was going to see a cool electrical display down in the basement? Is that where he went when he walked away from Terry? If he did go to the basement, did he go alone? Did someone meet him in the basement? Is there truth to the alleged sighting of Kyron at 9 a.m. near the south entrance of the school by another student? Christina Porter and Skyline Elementary believed Kyron was absent for the remainder of the 4th because of a doctor's appointment that Terry alluded that he had. Despite that, Terry claimed that Kyron dropped his jacket and backpack at his desk before they set up the display board. So, what happened to the backpack and jacket? Did they just remain at the school all day? If they did, why didn't anyone think to report that? If the backpack and the jacket weren't missing, then where did they go? It was reported that Terry allegedly washed the jacket and backpack at one point on the 4th or 5th. If that's true, how did she get these items? Did the police return them? Or did she always have them since they were never left at the school to begin with? Why did Terry ask to borrow the pickup truck as a means of transporting all of Kyron's science fair materials and then not actually do that? She told Kane that she didn't realize the board and diorama would need to stay at the school for the fair, but like, what the hell logic is that? Why is there so much weirdness about making sure she had the truck? Did Kyron have a doctor's appointment for the 4th? Did he have an appointment on the 11th instead? Did he ever have a fucking doctor's appointment at all? If there was no doctor's appointment, again, I ask, why did Terry lie? 
When Kyron was marked absent at 10 a.m., why didn't anyone from the school call to confirm the absence instead of just assuming things about why he was no longer at the school? What did Terry buy at the first Fred Meyer store? Did she buy it intentionally to have that receipt to present later? Why was she so insistent to chat with her fellow gym member, Andrea, when they had never really done so before? And it isn't across the board reported about Terry going to Magic Dry Cleaners and or Michael's Craft Store after she finally got Kiara's ear infection medicine. Why not? Did she actually go to these places? Was Terry really just driving aimlessly for an hour and a half after 10.10? If not, what the hell was she doing? What are we to make of the 10.39 phone usage? Was it just a ping or was it a phone call? If it was a call, who was Terry speaking to and why has it never been disclosed what the call was about? Or was this the Savvy Island ping that wasn't actually on Savvy Island? When Terry returned from the gym and went back to the house, it was said that she emailed Christina Porter to ask when she could pick up Kyron's display board and diorama. If that email happened, then going back to the weirdness about the truck, then Terry knew she wasn't going to pick it up that morning like she later told people she thought she was supposed to. So what's the point of these contradicting stories? Why didn't Terry, or Kane for that matter, call Desiree after they discovered Kyron was missing? Why did she have to hear the news from the secretary? It took the Hormans and the Youngs until June 11th to speak to the press. What really convinced them to wait that long? Why didn't Desiree or Terry speak during the press conference? What happened on June 14th? What did police discover to convince them to change the status of their investigation from missing endangered child to a criminal investigation? Is there any truth to the claims that Rodolfo Sanchez made that Terry tried to hire him in a bid to murder Kane? Terry clearly knew who he was because she hired him as a landscaper, but did she ever actually ask him to murder Kane over a meal at a restaurant like Sanchez claimed? And if that happened, how did they even communicate? Though the sting failed when Terry called police saying that she was being extorted for $10,000, we know an attempted sting happened. However, it later came out that Sanchez was being pressed by the DA to participate in the sting under the threat of being deported. So, it has to be asked, did someone within the investigation use Rodolfo Sanchez as an excuse to create suspicion around Terry? Did Rodolfo Sanchez take his concerns to police himself, or did the police approach him? Why was Terry sexting Michael Cook in the midst of the search for Kyron? She was doing this before Kane even really filed for divorce, so was this fledgling affair a means of coping? Or was it more sinister, a way for her to attach herself to another man in the midst of all the suspicion and speculation? Was Terry actually suffering from postpartum depression? Was she drinking heavily again, as Kane claimed? What did Terry actually write in the emails that suggested that she hated Kyron and blamed him for the problems in her marriage to Kane? Were Terry and Kane actually up fighting until 3 a.m. on the morning of June 4th, like she claimed? Did this alleged fight lead her to taking revenge on Kane by harming Kyron? What the hell is Dee Dee Spiker's role in all of this? Was she the other person seen in the white pickup on June 4th? Why did she really get Terry that burner phone? 
Was it Dee Dee's burner phone that called Terry's at 10.39 a.m.? Why did Terry's legitimate phone ping off the Savi Island cell tower, despite the fact that there was only one way onto the island and surveillance cameras never captured the white truck going onto the island? Was Terry on Savi Island on June 4th, but in a different car? If she was, why? Was Dee Dee on Savi Island on June 4th? Did Terry coordinate some sort of handoff to Dee Dee or another unknown person to get rid of Kyron? Could Kyron be found on or near Savi Island, or is Savi Island just a perpetual red herring? Why did Dee Dee Spiker plead the fifth 142 times when testifying in the civil suit in 2012? Don't worry, we're going to get more into this. With 10 years of investigation and evidence, why hasn't the grand jury been able to return an indictment for anyone? What evidence does the grand jury have that we still don't even know? What is the 100-acre area that investigators have narrowed their search to in recent years? Investigators are confident that Kyron's case will be solved. What did they know that we haven't yet learned, and why are they so confident? What is the piece of information that makes them so confident? Did Kyron wander off on June 4th and get caught or stuck somewhere in the school? Did he wander off into the woods and get lost? Did a stranger or predator lure Kyron away from the school? If they did, was Kyron always their target? Or was this predator's kidnapping target never specific, and the selection was based solely on opportunity with how unregulated Skyline was on June 4th? Was Kyron taken from the school by his own stepmother? Is Terry the reason that Kyron disappeared? And if she is, why did she do it? And if she's not, where really is Kyron? When you get right down to it, there are really four theories to consider when we wonder about what happened to Kyron. One, that he somehow got stuck inside a crawl space or something of the ilk within Skyline Elementary. Two, that he wandered off of school grounds of his own accord and has yet to be found. Three, that he was lured from the school by a stranger or otherwise unfamiliar adult. Four, that he was taken from the school by someone he knew. Given the extensiveness of the searches that have been conducted in the 10 years since Kyron vanished, it's hard to imagine that he wouldn't have been found by now if he is, in fact, somehow still inside the school. To put it frankly, the idea of decomposition and putrefaction going undetected for so many years is, again, hard to imagine. Similarly, given the many, many thorough searches conducted in the immediate area around the school, including with search and cadaver dogs, if Kyron had wandered into the forestry surrounding the school, how did his body not turn up in the first few days of searching? And how has it not turned up still? Where could he have wandered off to that made it this difficult to find his body even so many years later? We also know from Desiree's own account that Kyrie was afraid of getting lost, despite the fact that, you know, he was known to go off on his own sometimes. Those were mainly just trips to the bathroom, inside wanderings, nothing at all like stepping outside of school grounds and going off into the woods. All that said, 
those scenarios aren't impossible. Unlikely, but not impossible. Which brings us to the idea that Chiron's disappearance was purposeful, if not out and out planned. Skyline Elementary on June 4th was as ideal a location as any predator could have asked for. No checking in with the office, no signing in for a registration, no security, not even a rogue surveillance camera. Had a community predator been paying enough attention, it's not beyond reason that they had planned and calculated how best to get into Skyline, secure a victim, and get the hell out. Whether that victim was always going to be Chiron all along, or if he was just a random target that day, the coin toss goes either way. And with the amount of adults wandering the school that day, what would one more be? We have, after all, that male chaperone Terry claimed that she saw with Chiron. Perhaps this was the person who told Chiron about the cool electrical display in the basement that one of his friends later mentioned to investigators that Chiron wanted to go look at. Perhaps that was where Chiron and this chaperone were walking off to before he was let off and out of the safety offered by the school. But then again, like I said once before, even that theory, the theory of a stranger abduction, leads us back to Terry. Anyone with eyes can see that in a perfect world without hashtag questions and contradictions, Terry makes the perfect suspect. The suspicious behavior, the ever-changing stories, the vagueness, the implied anger, the whispers, the hints, the signs that all point to her, but never quite make it all the way there. For every seemingly damning piece of proof, there's another incident or item of evidence that derails it. Even so, that 10 years later, there actually never has been one suspect named in Chiron's disappearance. Even with a civil suit that Desiree brought against Terry for $10 million in 2012 with the plea to, quote, just tell us where Chiron is, Terry has never formally been named as a suspect. Sure, the suit didn't help the local rumors that still linger, especially not after our friend Didi was deposed, but pled the fifth 142 times over questions about her, quote, whereabouts on June 4th, 2010, and her contact with Terry that day. She also declined to identify a photo of Kyron or whether she had met him before or not. My question to such simple questions then is, why not? What is it that's not being said? What aren't we being told about what happened on June 4th? The overall concept of communication, vague communication or even out and out miscommunication as a whole, is somewhat of the crux of this case, if you ask me. So many years later, and there are still things, crucial pieces of evidence that we just simply don't know and only add to the convoluted and confusing twists and turns that make up this case. There are a few things that I personally hold firm to that if they become resolved or answered, we will know what happened to Chiron. The first one would be finding the truth out about the doctor's appointment. The second 
knowing where exactly Terry was in that 90-minute span that's unaccounted for. And the third would be where Dee Dee was in her own unaccounted for hour and a half that overlaps with Terry's. What we're looking at as the case stands right now in 2020 is an unsolved, jumbled mess of a puzzle. We have the outside edges secure enough, sure. A lot of different pieces have been constructed and fit in, even if they don't fully connect to each other yet. But we still have so, so many discarded and outlying pieces waiting to find their spot, waiting to find their place in creating the clear and full picture to give us the answer of what happened to Kyron Horman on June 4th, 2010. What's interesting though, is that we did get a new piece of the puzzle just a few months ago in May. And that piece is this. Kyron's regular bus driver, a classmate, and two of that classmate's family members testified that they all saw Kyron leave Skyline Elementary on June 4th and walk away through the parking lot. And he was walking with Terry. Just another piece to fit into our puzzle. While we try to understand what the pieces we already have and have had for years are trying to tell us about where Kyron is. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I'll be back here next week with another hashtag question loaded story to tell you. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts to leave a review and a five-star rating. And before I sign off, I want to highlight a couple of business bitch things. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash podcast to see what level might be up your alley of interest. There's a brand new Patreon level that only costs $1. You can support DAW and the work I do here for just $1 a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode and have access to exclusive content on the Patreon. October's upcoming calendar of exclusive Patreon content for all of the different levels is sure to get everyone in the spooky mood. So come check it all out at patreon.com slash dark as hell podcast. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find dark as hell on Instagram at dark as hell podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at dark as hell pod. Again, that's all one word. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkasthellpodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out all things DAW over on the new website, darkasthellpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again. <laughs>